We really have two aims with our time together. We're going to work through the back half of Hebrews 9, and I'll explain to you in a minute why we're uh, essentially sort of skipping the first half of Hebrews 9 to really focus on the back half. We want to talk about some of the key ideas, and as we get into Hebrews 9 here in just a few minutes, we're really going to bounce between verse 15 and then verse 26, 27, 28 at the end of the chapter. And I realize we're just not able to cover every single verse. We're sort of taking a pass on the first half of the chapter. We read that together. We're not going to cover everything in the back half, but I want us to see some of the key ideas that frame what the author of Hebrews is arguing. And the second thing we're going to do is we're going to have a, a time where we ordain Jason Westfall as an elder. And so Jason's sitting up here. He's got some family with him today. We're glad you guys could be here and uh, just come off a long drive to the east coast and back and uh, in the middle of a move, and so I know they're fresh this morning and uh, ready for worship. Stay awake. This would be a bad Sunday to fall asleep, so somebody poke Jason if he falls asleep. We've spent a year with Jason, uh, our elders have. It's about a year process when we uh, decide to add a new elder and set somebody apart for that task, and we ask this person to come and meet with us. Uh, at our regular elder meetings. We have discussions as we go through uh, this sort of one-year period. Some of those discussions have been about uh, Jason's salvation experience and his call to ministry and what that looks like in his life. Some of our conversations have been about uh, the character qualifications that are detailed in the New Testament for the office of elder or pastor. So we've discussed some of those things. We've talked about uh, his family life and finances and all of those sorts of things. Things. Uh, we've talked about doctrine and theology and, and grilled him on various things that we want to make sure he's solid on and that he's a good fit for our church and our elders. And after going through all of that process, uh, our elders presented him to you as a church unanimously uh, as an elder candidate. You guys voted unanimously to approve him. And so this morning we're going to take a moment at the end of the message just to pray for Jason. Uh, most of the work has been done. And that's the way that it ought to be in an ordination. It ought, ought not be that you spend a whole lot of time at the very end and you've done nothing up to that point. I've been part of ordinations like that, and I've thought, we're kind of getting it backwards here. Most of the legwork ought to be done on the front end, and then we're affirming and recognizing how God is using Jason on the back end. And so we are going to do that this morning. All of that starts with Hebrews 9. And as we start Hebrews 9, I just want to remind you of some of the big thoughts we've seen as we've worked through the book of Hebrews. There's sort of a, a two-fold purpose that runs all the way through this book. One is negative. Negatively, Hebrews is written to warn Christians about the danger of falling away. There's a warning, and it runs all the way through this book from the beginning to the end. Do not stop following Jesus. Don't stop believing don't quit trusting. Don't quit growing. And even this last week in the, the Christian world in the United States of America, there was a very prominent pastor, a very prominent author, a very prominent conference speaker. And he got on Instagram and he said, essentially, I'm done. I'm out. I'm walking away. You call it falling away from the faith. I'm pretty happy about things. And it's just a reminder that this happens all of the time. And the book of Hebrews is written to speak into our lives and to say, do not stop following 
Jesus. So this warning runs all the way through the book. Then positively, it's written to encourage us to persevere in the faith. And we've talked about the perseverance of the saints, that those who are born again, those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are truly regenerate, will continue persevering in their faith and following after Jesus. And the book of Hebrews writes to us, speaks to us, and says, keep following, keep pressing on. Don't go backwards, but keep trusting in Jesus and persevere in the faith. Last week, I sort of gave you a summary statement. This is not in your notes, but I'll put it on the screen. I gave you a summary statement of the first seven chapters. Hebrews 1 to 7 is a, a single sustained argument basically for how great Jesus is, how glorious Jesus is. He is truly God. He's not a creature. He is creator. He is God. And he became human. Not just like he appeared human, he really took on human flesh and lived as a human being. He's greater, the book of Hebrews says, than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than Levi. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than all these Old Testament heroes. And he is an anchor for our souls. You and I are adrift on the sea of life, the sea of faith. And Jesus, and Jesus alone, is this anchor that can hold us fast and keep us secure. So that's Hebrews 1 to 7. Then you come to Hebrews 8 verse 1. And there's sort of a new section at the beginning of Hebrews 8, and we're in the middle of it right now, 8.1 to 10.18. talks about the death of Jesus and how the death of Jesus establishes the new covenant. Jesus died a sacrificial death on the cross, and because he died that death... We now live not under the old covenant, but under the new covenant. And the author of Hebrews kind of bounces back and forth, Old Testament up to the New Testament, comparing and contrasting. This is what it was like under the old. This is what it's like in the new now that Jesus has come and established this new covenant. Okay, so just a minute ago, we're getting closer to our passage. Corey read Hebrews 9, 1 to 14. And that same idea runs through it. It's a, a comparison of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And specifically, I think the author of Hebrews is thinking about the Day of Atonement. I think as he describes the holy place and the purification of the ceremony and the ritual, and he goes in once a year and there's sacrifice for the sins of the people, all this imagery he's pulling from is straight out of Leviticus 16. And you can reference that. And what he's saying is this one most holy, most important day in Israel's history, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, it has now been fulfilled because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so that brings us about to the middle of Hebrews 9. The big idea of our passage is exactly the same as it was last week. No surprises. Jesus, our great high priest, has established a new and a better covenant. Right? We've looked to the old. We've been reminded this is what it was like in the old covenant. But now Jesus has come and he's died a death that is different than all those other sacrifices. And the covenant we live under is new and better. It's far superior to this old covenant. One of the things that we've talked a lot about lately is this idea that Jesus is our great high priest. And that's something that you see throughout the New Testament in various places. But more than any other book in the Bible, the book of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is our great high priest. In fact, I was reading this week in John Calvin's commentary 
on the book of Hebrews, and he said this, There is no book in the Holy Scriptures which speaks so clearly to the priesthood of Christ and so highly exalts the virtue and dignity of that only true sacrifice which he offered by his death. No place in Scripture speaks so highly of Jesus being our high priest and details so clearly and so specifically the sacrifice that he offered as our great high priest. And so we're going to read the last half of the chapter, and then we'll jump in and see what some of the the big thoughts are here. Hebrews 9, let's pick up in verse 15. The Scripture says this, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. And he sprinkled the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the book of Hebrews. We thank you for this truth that we live under a new covenant, a better covenant. Father, we know that that's possible because of who Jesus was and what he did on our behalf. And this morning, our prayer is very simple. We want to see Jesus. We want to see truth about Jesus. We want to know it. We want to realize it. We want to, to let it take root in our hearts and change us. Father, we know that we have no relationship with you apart from Jesus, our great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice. And so we thank you for that sacrifice this morning. We thank you for Jesus, our priest who intercedes for us. Father, let us leave with a greater love for him. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I want to start 
just for a moment. I want you to look at verse 22, and I want us to talk about blood for a minute. Okay, let's talk about blood. Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. It's talking about the Old Covenant, how these physical things that were copies of heavenly things, how they were sanctified and made holy and, and set apart for special service. They're purified with blood, almost everything. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I don't know that the author of Hebrews could have any idea what our culture would be like with media and television and movies and Hollywood. I think it's safe to say that Hollywood and TVs have completely ruined us when it comes to blood. We watch war movies that are extremely graphic. We watch horror movies that are absolutely ridiculous. We watch even superhero movies that are very, very violent. And we watch these images on TV and in our brain we sort of compartmentalize and we sort of know what I'm watching is not real. It's the special effects department or it's the computer team or it's the, the prop team. And we sort of disengage from some of the horrific things that we watch. And so we're sort of uh, desensitized, you might say, to blood on the one hand. On the other hand, just be around one of your kids when they crack their head open and blood goes everywhere and you immediately say, this is, this is terrible, this is unsettling, this is disturbing. And we sort of live with this, this strange dichotomy when it comes to blood. And to make all of that even weirder, we get together in this room once a week and we sing songs about blood. And if you grew up in church, you really don't think anything about that. You just think, well, that's what we did. We sang one earlier, and you guys sang it, and we talked about his blood and his righteousness, and we just sang it out, and we know what that means. But I just want you for a second to try to take yourself out of a Christian bubble. Imagine growing up in a non-Christian secular home, and imagine you just pop into a church service one day, and imagine they're singing the hymn by William Cooper, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, and people start singing this. You don't know anything. Everyone starts singing. There is a fountain filled with blood. That's kind of weird. Like if you don't, to you and me, you say, no, that's not weird, that's beautiful. That's the gospel. That's our hope. But if you're outside of that Christian bubble, you say, these people are singing about a fountain, and the fountain has blood in it, and they pulled it out of some guy's veins? Oh, man. And then you're going to take sinners and plunge them in the flood, this fountain filled with blood, and when they come out, they're going to be clean. No stains. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, and if you're not raised in the Bible, you hear us sing that, and you think, these people are crazy. How do I make my way to the back door? Because these people, this is not, I mean, this is really weird stuff. Now, again, to you and I, it's sort of familiar. And we sing about the blood of Jesus, and we talk about the blood of Jesus, and we've worked our way through the book of Hebrews, and we've talked about blood and sacrifices and all of it. I just want to stop and acknowledge that for non-Christian people, that stuff is a little bit strange, and I also want to acknowledge this. For a lot of folks who claim to be Christian people, 
all this blood stuff is embarrassing. You may not know exactly where I'm going with this, but I just want you to understand that there are a lot of scholars, pastors, Christians in name who look at all this blood stuff. And these are some of the words they would use to describe all this blood stuff. It's abhorrent. I read that word this week. All the stuff about blood, this is abhorrent. It's barbaric and it's primitive. I'm just telling you, there are people out there who read about these old covenant sacrifices and all the blood, and they read about the New Testament, and they keep talking about Jesus' blood, and these people look at these passages, Old Covenant and New Covenant, and they walk away saying, that is disgusting and abhorrent. I don't want anything to do with that sort of religion or faith. It's barbaric. And it's primitive. Basically, they just sort of look down their nose through the the lens of history and they say, these people were a bunch of superstitious weirdos. And we are now enlightened and we know that that stuff is just kind of gross. They're a little bit embarrassed. In fact, they're not a little bit embarrassed. They're a lot of embarrassed by what they read in the Old Testament and the New Testament about all of this blood. And you may know people like that. If you've ever watched the History Channel or, or some of these different things around Easter or Christmas, you may have seen scholars talking about this sort of stuff, sort of laughing at the idea that we would celebrate the blood of Jesus. And I just want to say a few things, not really to you, but I'm sharing these thoughts with you in response to the folks that I read this week who said, all this blood stuff is abhorrent and, and barbaric and primitive. Just a few thoughts. Number one. You and I live in a culture that is guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We think that because we live now and everyone else lived back then that we're smarter than everyone else. We think that because we live now and they live back then that the way things are today are better and more enlightened and just all around sort of we've evolved to a new level of humanity. And we look back at all these people behind us in history and we just tend to think they're a bunch of idiots. And so we stand at our vantage point as chronological snobs and we say all those people before us are just a bunch of primitive, backwoods, silly, superstitious folks. At the same time, we live in a day and a place and a culture where a number of abhorrent, barbaric things are tolerated, not even just tolerated, but celebrated. That's true of our culture on multiple levels. We live in a culture that allows abortion on demand as a form of birth control. That's barbaric. We live in a culture that has taken marriage and redefined it to fit whatever we feel like it ought to fit. The Bible would say that's abhorrent, right? There are a number of things in our culture, while we look down our nose at these people back there and talk about how primitive they are, that we ought to maybe look in the mirror and realize just how primitive we are on some levels. One thing I want to say to you when you look at these words, maybe you're wrestling with some of this you got to make a decision about the Bible. I mean, you got to make a call one way or the other. And one option is you can submit to its authority. And you can read the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and I promise you, if this sort of stuff makes you uneasy, you're going to be uneasy about a whole lot more. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here you're going to wrestle with. And you say, I don't know about that. I, 
that's kind of making me uncomfortable. I'm not sure that that's the way it is or it ought to be. And you're going to have to wrestle with it. And you have a decision to make. You can listen to the Word of God and submit to its authority and say, what it says is true and I will believe it and live it. Or you can put yourself in judgment over it. And you can cherry pick and you can nitpick and you can say, these are the parts that I don't like. These are the parts that I view abhorrent, barbaric, and primitive. And so I'm going to be done with those parts and I'm going to keep some of it. But what you're saying if you do that is that you are the real authority over God's word. Because you're the one deciding what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's false. Another thing I would say to you is this. As you listen to folks who may say this blood stuff is just silliness. Unbelievers have always thought the gospel was silly. Always. When Noah built an ark, they thought he was silly. When Paul preached in Corinth, everyone said that is foolish and weak. And we don't want anything to do with the crucified Messiah. And Paul said, you know what, if it's foolish and weak... Give me that label. I will gladly wear it. I'm not going to change my message. I'm not going to accommodate to what would make you feel good about yourself. I'm going to preach the gospel. And if you think it's foolish, then you think it's foolish. And if you think it's weak, then you think it's weak. This is not new to 2019. And the last thing I would say is this. All this blood talk. You've got one side that says it's abhorrent and barbaric and primitive. I'm going to tell you it's really important. Really important. Because the God described in this book is a holy, righteous, just God. And he does not accommodate his standards of holiness to line up with our level of holiness. He doesn't look down at 2019 in the United States of America and say, you know, it's probably time for version 2.0 of some of this stuff. I mean, these people are really uncomfortable, so I need to accommodate myself lower my standards of holiness or change to line up with their quote-unquote enlightened viewpoint. That is not how it works. When the Bible describes God and His holiness and His righteousness and His justness, and the Bible describes you and I as sinful people, this verse is not embarrassing. It's really important. Verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Because God is holy, and He is righteous, and He is just, and He will not lower His standards. He will not grade on a curve, as it were. Justice must be met. And that's why Jesus came, to offer Himself as that sacrifice. So rather than be embarrassed by these things, rather than sort of leave and go out into the world and say, okay, we're going to do the blood stuff when we're in this room, but... That's kind of weird. I don't want to tell people about it out there. We're not going out embarrassed about it. We're not going out apologizing for it. We're not going out trying to cover it up or hide it. We're going out saying this is the greatest news that the world has ever heard. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Good news. Blood has been shed. We're not apologizing for the new covenant. We're rejoicing in the new covenant. And what I want you to see this morning is just a few reasons why should we rejoice in the new covenant. Let me just throw a few ideas your way. Number one, it's because Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant or of the new covenant. He's the mediator. That's an important word. You find it in verse 15 
Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. I just pulled that straight out of verse 15. When I say mediator, you probably think about uh, the legal world and the courts and mediation. And your mind probably goes to the idea that you've got two sides and they disagree about something and rather than go before a judge and a court, they're going to go before a mediator. Maybe you think of like a a marriage counseling situation where there's a a man and a woman and they can't get along and so they're going to go to a counselor who's going to sort of be the the go-between, the mediator. And in those situations, if that's what you're thinking of, what you want from the mediator is someone who is unbiased, right? Like if, if you and your spouse are having marriage problems, you don't want your spouse's best friend to be the mediator, you're like, they're just going to throw me under the bus. They're on, they're on his side or they're on her side. I don't want to listen to what they have to say. I want somebody who's going to be right down the middle, or maybe they could be on my side. That would be okay. But at least right down the middle, right? In sort of a legal setting, you want the same thing. If you find yourself in mediation with somebody in a, an opposing company or a, co- a competitor or some sorts, you want the mediator to be fair and unbiased and right down the middle. You don't want them taking sides, right? Here's the thing. Jesus is our mediator. God in his holiness, the Father in his righteousness, is angry with us for our sin. He will not compromise on his standards of holiness. You and I, for our part, are guilty. We deserve this judgment. Jesus is the mediator, does not come in between us and God and say, okay, look, guys, you sinful people need to do a little bit better. And Father, can you just dial it down a little bit? It's not that big a deal. We're going to work. He's not working for a compromise. This is what happens. The son stands in between guilty sinners and the father, and the son says, you know what? The father's right. You're a sinner. You're guilty. You're culpable. He's angry, and he has every right to be angry. He completely sides with the father. And at that point in the mediation, you're thinking, this is not going so good. But then the son as it were, in this mediation, sort of comes over to your side. Not to puff you up or to give you a pep talk or anything like that. He comes over to your side and he says, the punishment that rightly should fall on you, I'm going to take it. I'm going to pay the debt. I'm going to die the death that you should die. We're not lowering God's standard of holiness. We're not denying our sinfulness. Jesus, our mediator, completely agrees. God the Father is in the right and we are in the wrong. And what he gladly does is give his life as a sacrifice for us. He's our mediator. He's our mediator. Here's the second truth. This ties right in with the first. Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. This is an idea we talked about last week. He offers himself as a perfect sacrifice. Look at verse 26. He's talking about the high priest, and he comes every year. He does it over and over and over again. And he said if Jesus was doing that, he, just, he would suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the author of Hebrews is telling you, and we saw this last week, the sacrifice that Jesus offered is 
perfect. It's not like the bulls and the goats and the doves and the animals in the Old Covenant. It's a perfect sacrifice. Those Old Covenant sacrifices couldn't actually fix our sin problem. They reminded us of our sin problem. They were a visual reminder that what we deserve is death and blood has to be spilled. But they couldn't fix anything. By contrast, verse 26, Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It worked. All those old covenant sacrifices didn't work. Jesus' sacrifice Worked. It truly dealt with sin. And it says in verse 26, he came at the end of the ages. He came at just the right time. Paul tells the the Galatians a, a very similar thing. He says, Jesus came. He was born at the fullness of time. At the perfect moment he came. And he offered this sacrifice once for all. And what the argument here is, is once for all time. A single sacrifice that has lasting impact. Impact into the past and impact into the future. It is a perfect sacrifice. I love the way Richard Phillips says this. Bible scholar Richard Phillips. Christ died to satisfy the justice of God. Now that justice is satisfied. He died to pay the debt. And that debt, having been paid... God's perfect justice can never come back for more. The accounts are settled, it is finished, and the debt is paid. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how you feel about your relationship with God. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is where you stand. Your account is settled. There's no outstanding balance. It's finished and the debt has been paid. The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus offered this one perfect sacrifice and it put away sin. That's what Jesus meant when he's dying on the cross and with his last last breath he says, it's finished. It worked. It did what I aimed for it to do. And the result is that your account is settled. It's all finished and the debt is paid. Number three, Jesus purchased an eternal inheritance. Why do we rejoice in the new covenant? We have an eternal inheritance. Verse 15, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, and that death redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I mean, this is mind-blowing. Going back to our idea of Jesus as our mediator, he stands between us and the Father. He completely agrees with the Father that we're guilty and we're sinful and we're wicked and we deserve death. He comes to our side and he takes the punishment and he settles the accounts and he pays the debt. And he doesn't just leave us back at even, but he says, I have died to give you an eternal inheritance. Don't we all dream about getting an inheritance? Like, just admit it. You can say, no, I don't care about money and all that stuff. Baloney. We all dream about getting an inheritance. I listen to sports radio. There's a dopey little commercial that comes on. I always turn it off because I've heard it so many times. It's a commercial encouraging you to save for retirement. And it's two people talking, maybe like a husband and a wife. And the wife is the voice of reason. And the wife says, you know, we really should be saving. We should be putting some money back. Someday we're not going to work and we're going to need to have some money. And then the guy speaks up and the guy's always the idiot. And the guy speaks up in this little commercial and he says, I have a plan for that. I have a plan. The plan is 
my great uncle that I have never met is going to die, and I'm going to get an inheritance, and we're going to live high on the hog. And you listen to the commercial, and you say, okay, I get, I get the point. The lady's right. You need to save. You need to prepare. You can't bank on an inheritance like that. And intellectually, we might know that's true, but in the back of your mind, when you hear that commercial, don't you still think, what if I did have an uncle? What if that was real and he died and I inherited like a, a villa on an island in the Mediterranean? And wouldn't that be amazing? It's not just people in 2019 who dream about that. Human beings have always dreamed about that, at least for the last 2,000 years. And I know that's true because Jesus told a parable. And one of the parables that Jesus told that has stood the test of time, that people know, that people remember, that people love, is the parable of the prodigal son. It's a story about a son who knew he had an inheritance coming and he just couldn't wait to get it. Even if it meant severing his relationship with the father, he had to get it immediately. Why did that parable resonate with the people listening to Jesus? It's because people are people. It doesn't matter if you live in the Middle East in the first century or you live in Odessa, Texas in 2019. We all have this dream that something unfortunate will happen to somebody I don't know and don't care about. And I'm going to benefit. Can I tell you that the book of Hebrews has something way better than that to offer you? I mean, way better than some anonymous uncle dying and leaving you a villa in the Mediterranean. It's way better. Here it is. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. You don't have to gamble on your eternity. You don't even have to work really hard to make sure you go to heaven someday. Jesus did that. He died in your place as your mediator. And he purchased an inheritance for you that is greater than a million bucks from a stranger or greater than an island in the Mediterranean. It's eternal. It's a city that will last forever. It's living in God's presence with God as your God and you as one of his people in a right relationship because the debts have been paid and the accounts have been settled and he died to provide this to you. This is a better covenant than the old covenant. He died to purchase an eternal inheritance. You can have it. You can have it. To those who are called, this is the promised eternal inheritance. Number four, Jesus will save his people from judgment. He will save his people from judgment. Look at the last couple of verses here, verse 27 and 28. It says, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. He's not coming back to die on a cross again. He's not coming back to suffer as the suffering servant. He's not coming back to give his life as a sacrifice. He is coming back to save a specific group of people. Not all people. He is coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. My family went and saw The Lion King uh, opening Friday. 
And I think if you've seen the cartoon, you love the, the live action. I've seen a few people online that didn't like it, but I, we thought it was great. You know the songs, you know the characters. It was really good. And uh, in the movie, if you've seen the first one or the second one or both, you know they both talk about the circle of life. And there's a little scene in the movie that's sort of funny where uh, Papa Lion is talking to Baby Lion and he's trying to explain this to him. And he says, look, uh, you know, we do eat the gazelle, but then uh, someday we die. And we decompose out in the field and the grass grows up where we have decomposed and the gazelle eat the grass. So it's kind of like we eat the gazelle and the gazelle eat us and round and round we go. And you hear that and you say, okay, yeah, that... That makes sense. I see the logic in that. There's a, a circularity there. But the movie, and I'm not knocking it. You can see it. It's, it's fine. The movie takes it a step further than that when it comes to this idea of the circle of life. And the movie sort of gets into this idea of once you die, once your life here ends, uh, you go somewhere else. And those people who go somewhere else, they might appear to us or they might come visit us or they might talk to us or they might come in a dream to us in some way, shape, or form. And it's a, a basically a worldview question. Every worldview has to answer this question, what happens after you die? And the question in The Lion King is, well, you die and you go to this place and there's all of these folks and you'll have some influence over things here. And you remember the scene with the stars and are the stars balls of gas? No, there are ancestors looking down on us and watching over us and protecting us. You can sort of laugh at the movie and the answers it presents, but this is a basic worldview question. What happens when you die? And you can compare worldviews all over the planet. There's not a whole lot of answers. There's just a few answers that show up. One answer is sort of similar to what you see here in that it's sort of a, a reincarnation idea. Like you're gone, but you're still around, and you're going to come back some other way, shape, or form. Very popular in Eastern faiths. A very popular answer among those who are secular in their belief, atheistic in their belief, is that nothing happens. You die, and that's it. You turn into the grass, and the gazelles eat you, and it's over. And you just need to admit that, and you need to face it with a, the British stiff upper lip and deal with it. Nothing happens after death. I think the most popular idea in our country is just bliss. It really doesn't matter what you believed or all that much what you did. You die, you go somewhere happy, somewhere nice, somewhere pleasant. All your dreams come true, and everything's easy and comfortable and relaxing, and you just sort of kick your feet up and enjoy yourself. And the book of Hebrews speaks into all that confusion and chaos and says, this is what happens. This is what happens. You don't have to doubt it. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to flip a coin and pick one of these options. Here's what happens. Verse 27. It's been appointed that human beings will die one time. You die once, and after that you face a judgment. You're not going to come back as something else. It's not going to just be the end. You're going to die once, and then you're going to face judgment. You say, well, what if I don't die when Jesus comes back? Jesus comes back before I actually die. Well, he answers that question. Jesus is going to appear a second time. Some of us might be fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to live to the time when Jesus returns. So if you don't die and then go face judgment, Jesus will return. And he's coming back to save 
those, he's saving those who are eagerly waiting for him. And the author of Hebrews is saying to us, this sacrifice that Jesus offered is not just life-changing now, but it is eternity-changing 10 billion, 10 trillion years into the future. It hinges on this sacrifice. That's how big a deal it is. That's how important this blood stuff is. It's not something you need to be embarrassed about. It's something you need to rejoice in. That the blood of Jesus can save you and forgive you and cleanse you. That when you're plunged beneath this fountain, pulled from his veins, as it were, you come out spotless. You come out clean. You come out hoping for an eternal inheritance that's been promised. Or you can laugh at it. And you can call it barbaric, and you can call it primitive, and you can say, oh, that's abhorrent, and you can say, oh, that's foolishness, and that's weakness. Why would I trust in a crucified Messiah? And the book of Hebrews is sort of presenting these two options to you, and it's just reminding you, just remember, as you make this call, you die once, and then you face judgment. And Jesus is coming back to save not everyone, but those who are eagerly waiting and eagerly hoping for his appearing. Look, some of you this morning, you hear all of this and you say, amen, amen, this is great, I love it, this is the good news, this is the gospel, this is what my hope is in, and to that I just say amen. Praise God that he has opened your eyes, he's changed your heart, he's called you as described in verse 15, and you love this news. Amen. Hang on to it, don't turn back, don't stop following Jesus. Don't be ashamed of this gospel message, but believe it and rejoice in it. And some of you are here this morning and you're thinking, man, I don't know. The blood stuff is really kind of freaking me out. It's really weird and I, I don't understand all of this. And you hear us talk about a, a man who was crucified 2,000 years ago and you think, I, could, that, could that work for me? Is it true? You're, you're questioning in your mind right now. You're wondering, is that real? Is this just another fairy tale? Is this just another sort of story that gets told in religious groups? Or maybe it's real. Maybe it really happened. And maybe the blood of Jesus would wash me and make me clean. And to those of you wrestling with it, I want to empathize with you on the challenge of some of these things. I want to acknowledge with Paul, I realize this sounds like foolishness and weakness. I get it. But to those of us who are being saved, this is the power of God for salvation. And you can know that power. Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The debts will be paid. The accounts will be settled. It's finished. Now, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond in a minute. I want to give a charge to Jason. And as you think about giving a charge to a new elder, there's a number of passages you can go to in the New Testament. You can look at a number of different chapters, verses that talk about the role of an elder, the function of an elder, the responsibilities of an elder. I just want to think about Hebrews 9. I just want to set a few thoughts before you, Jason, as we prepare to pray for you and set you apart for this work. As an elder, number one, most basically, most foundationally, your hope 
must be in the finished work of Jesus, the sacrifice that he offered. Not in the blue lanyard we're going to give you in a minute that says elder on it. Not in the fact that people here will say, oh, there's Pastor Jason. Not in the fact that you will do something as an elder that will somehow earn your way with God. But your hope is in what our hope is in, what God's people have always hoped in. God has provided a sacrifice to save a sinner like me and a sinner like you and sinners like us. That's your confidence. Secondly, you as an elder have to be willing to proclaim a message that everyone out there thinks is foolish. They think it's barbaric. They think it's primitive. They, they think it's superstition. They think it's silly. And you have to sort of pick up the mantle of the Apostle Paul and say, so be it. You want to label me a fool? Label me a fool. You want to label me weak? Label me weak. But this is the power of God for salvation. It's got to be true for you, and you've got to believe that it can be true for others. One of the things I want to say to you, this is thirdly, is that as an elder, we're asking you to make certain sacrifices for this church family. And we're, we're putting that out as a blank check. We're not telling you what those are yet. We'll fill that in later. We're asking you to make certain sacrifices for this church. And as you do that, you make sacrifices for this church family, for the people sitting around you this morning. I just want you to do that in the mindset that Christ has offered the one sacrifice that matters. You don't have a sacrifice to offer for any of us that can change us or save us or give us any hope. But the sacrifices you make are made in light of the joyful sacrifice that Christ made for his people. Number four, I think as an elder, one of the things we're asking you to do is to live and to set an example. This is what it looks like when your hope is in an eternal inheritance, not in an inheritance now. One of the things the apostle Paul told Timothy is an elder cannot be greedy for gain. The way he thinks about money matters. And so we're charging you with that this morning. We're saying we're setting you apart to this task with the expectation that you will set the example for us for me included, this is what it looks like for a person not to chase a temporal inheritance, but for a person to chase an eternal inheritance. One of the things we're asking you to think about this morning as an elder is the reality that you will die once and you will stand in judgment. And Paul told Timothy, you need to keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. Because he understood, just because you're called to be a missionary or a pastor or an elder or whatever, doesn't mean you just sort of skate through all of that. You'll give an account. This is how I lived as an elder. This is how I led the people that Jesus gave his life to purchase. And you give an account for the doctrine, for the things that you teach, for the things that you say. And that's a heavy burden, but it's a burden we're asking you to take and to be aware of. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine. You will die and you will give an account of your life and your ministry. And then lastly, as an elder, we're asking you to take up this responsibility of knowing there are people out there who need to hear the warning of life and death and judgment and God's holiness and our sin and eternity and all the rest of it. And your role above all else is to point people beyond themselves, beyond our church, beyond a denominational name, and to point them to Jesus. And to say to these people, there is a sacrifice that has been offered. There is blood that has been spilled. That you can be plunged beneath and come out spotless. 
and all the accounts are settled. And so those are a few things as I read through Hebrews 9 that I think we're charging you with these things as an elder. Your confidence is in Jesus, not in yourself. You're willing to gladly proclaim a message that the world thinks is foolish. You make joyful sacrifices for this church family in light of the sacrifice that Jesus has offered for you. You set an example for us of what does it look like when a man chases an eternal inheritance. You live in the reality, number five, that you will live and you will die and you'll give an account for your life and your ministry. And then lastly, you take this responsibility of warning people about the reality of eternity and judgment.